If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Nikki Haley vows to stay in the 2024 Republican primary race as she sharpens her political attacks on Donald Trump. Meantime, a New York judge hits Trump with a $355 million judgment in the civil fraud case against his real estate empire. Welcome. I'm Kyle Peterson with The Wall Street Journal. We are joined today by my colleagues, columnists Bill McGurn and Kim Strassel. Let's start today in Greenville, South Carolina. The state's primary is coming up on Saturday, and Nikki Haley had called the press together for some remarks at noon, fueling speculation that she might be prepared to drop out and avoid what looks like a pretty solid defeat here coming on Saturday. But quite the opposite, she said, I refuse to quit. South Carolina will vote on Saturday. But on Sunday, I'll still be running for president. I'm not going anywhere. Let's listen to a bit more of what Haley said. Trump and Biden are two old men who are only getting older. Nearly 60% of Americans say Trump and Biden are both too old to be president. Because they are. We've all seen them fumble their words and get confused about world leaders. That's not who you want in the Oval Office when Russia launches a nuclear weapon at our satellites or China shuts down our electricity grid. Bill, it does seem to me that Haley is sharpening her argument against Donald Trump. Just to do a quick check of the polls there in South Carolina, the Real Clear Politics average for the primary is 62% Trump, Haley 37%, with a little bit of variation if you check individual polls. But South Carolina, again, one of those states like New Hampshire, where it's an open primary, you don't have to be a registered Republican to come out and cast a ballot. Yeah, I think that that dynamic is the key to Haley versus Trump. She is much more likely to get independent votes and she's strong that way. And you need independent votes to win the presidency. But she's weaker with Republican voters. Trump is the opposite. I don't think he's his appeal to independence is quite as strong. His appeal to Republicans is much stronger. In terms of her argument, it looks, at least for now, that she's not going to defeat Donald Trump in the primaries. That's not how she gets the nomination. She gets the nomination if he's somehow derailed from his legal troubles or something else, health troubles, and they're looking for another candidate. And she's hung in there and says, I am the best person to beat Joe Biden. And actually today, though the focus is on Trump and what she said about Trump, she was actually pretty targeted about Biden saying she is the best conservative Republican hope to beat Joe Biden. And remember, Bernie Sanders is only a force today because he stayed in against Hillary Clinton. Otherwise, no one would know him. He'd be an obscure New England socialist. Another notable new line of attack for Haley over the long President's Day weekend was on the death of Russian dissident Alexei Navalny. Let's listen to Haley on ABC This Week on Sunday. He not only after making those comments that he would encourage Putin to invade NATO, but the fact that he won't acknowledge anything with Navalny 
either he sides with Putin and thinks it's cool that that Putin killed one of his political opponents, or he just doesn't think it's that big of a deal. Either one of those is concerning. Either one of those is a problem. We've got to start seriously having a conversation in America about our national security. On Monday, President Trump broke that silence in a truth social post. Here is a part of what he said. The sudden death of Alexei Navalny has made me more and more aware of what is happening in our country. It is a slow, steady progression with crooked, radical left politicians, prosecutors and judges leading us down a path to destruction. So, Kim, a mention of Alexei Navalny there. But what about me is the the response from Donald Trump. And I've long since stopped wondering whether a bizarre statement like that from Donald Trump will cost him in this primary. On the other hand, it's hard not to reflect what a bizarre statement from the former president. It strikes me as a kind of statement that you make if you are actually avoiding the question of Vladimir Putin. And that's what I found so disappointing about it, is that his need to try to somehow connect this to what's happening in the United States and to him, rather than a very clear denunciation of the brutal dictator an autocrat who has invaded Ukraine and who has squashed out pretty much any attempts or efforts of any opposition in the party, because, of course, that is the history and story of Alexei Navalny, who has been a lawyer and opposition leader and anti-corruption activist and who was then subjected to any number of sham trials in order to lock him up and ultimately, it would appear, uh, have him murdered or at least deny him the care he needed after he was poisoned with a nerve agent, by the way, by Putin's people. Either way, it amounts to his death at Putin's hands. And that should have been easy for Trump to say. But this, of course, goes back to his long time, sort of almost at times admiration he has expressed of Vladimir Putin, his reluctance to actually call him out. And again, I agree with you. I don't necessarily think this is going to hurt him in the primary, but it ought to be giving a lot of people pause about his approach to foreign policy. Bill, what do you make of this and the broader story of Navalny? As Kim referenced, he was poisoned by a Soviet nerve agent a few years ago, then had been in jail since 2021. The story that is coming out of Russia is that he collapsed after a walk at his prison colony. But Bill, I mean, am I wrong to think that one way or another, I mean, he was killed by Putin and the Putin regime? Yeah, he illustrates what the regime is. The sad thing is that it's not a one-off event. People in Russia that oppose or Putin thinks oppose him They have a habit of falling out of windows in their hotels. He shoots down civilian airliners or backs the people that shoot them down. He jails one of our reporters and so forth. So as Kim says, it was an opportunity for Trump because the contrast, Navalny, embodies so much what is wrong with Russia and what is wrong with Putin. And he flubbed it. You don't know what reasons are coursing through former president's mind, but it sounds personal. I don't know why he continues to do that, but he does. And it gives openings to his critics. The news this morning is that Navalny's mother is asking for the release of his body, which has not happened yet. You can understand why they would potentially not want to release his body. The other point of contrast here is that there's all sorts of stories and photographs now of mourners, people near a wall of grief, for example, being arrested 
by Russian police. And Kim, that's another thing to keep in mind. There are sometimes comparisons between what is happening in the United States and what is happening in Russia. And I think looking at these photographs of people at a wall of grief being arrested for putting out flowers, for example, for an opposition figure is something that should bring people back to the realities of what life is really like in Russia. Yeah. And first of all, we should praise those people for doing that because it takes enormous courage because the second point here is those sites show just how dramatically worse things have become in Russia under Putin. He's obviously been there for decades now, but I would note that going back to 2013, Navalny was actually able to run in a mayor's race in Moscow. He came in second with 27% of the vote. It was a race with a lot of competitors in it. That at least was the fiction of a competitive election. And in the wake of that and other elections that were very sham and information that Navalny's anti-corruption groups had come out, there were moments when there were tens of thousands of Russians who came out at a time protesting Putin and that regime. You do not see that anymore these days. The last time there was something like it was when Putin invaded Ukraine. Already at that point, people had become scared. So there were fewer people and those that did come out were immediately rounded up and taken away. The message being that absolutely no opposition will be brooked these days. And that if you do so, terrible things will happen to you. Navalny himself, Going back to when he did some of these demonstrations, he was initially tried and convicted on sham embezzlement charges, but he was given a suspended sentence because Putin was concerned enough back then to arrest him and imprison him would provoke more upheaval and more demonstrations. It is a sign of how he feels just absolutely in control that he feels these days that he's not even worried anymore about those opposition protests. And he's happy to send Navalny away and have him murdered in prison. And he doesn't fear any consequences. Hang tight. We'll be right back in a moment. If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Welcome back. Let's turn to the ruling on Friday from New York Judge Arthur Engeron in the civil fraud case against Donald Trump. And Engeron has ordered several things. One of them is a ban on Donald Trump from being an officer or director of a New York corporation for a period of three years. And another is disgorgement and so forth that totals something like $355 million dollars. And if you add interest on top of that, there are news reports, Bill, suggesting that the total could come out to something more like 450 or closer to $500 million, half a billion dollars. Trump says he is going to appeal. And so one question that I'm very curious to see is whether an astounding figure like that is going to hold up when it gets to the appeals courts. Yeah, I think he has a good case for appeal. Look, He seems to have exaggerated on some forms in his valuations and I think the square footage of his apartment. But these are kind of common things in real estate. And it seems to me you'd get a more nominal fine. It's hard to believe that this is not an effort to use civil law to ruin Donald Trump financially. The attorney general, Letitia James, campaigned on actually going after Trump. In other words, let's 
target him first, then we'll find the crime and charge him with it. And I don't think the judge came off very well in this either. And so I wonder what an appeal will look like. Kim, I find some of the conduct that is described in this judge's ruling hard to defend as a matter of way of doing business. So some of the misrepresentations in these statements of financial condition that Trump and the Trump organization gave to lenders, including Deutsche Bank, some of the misrepresentations allegedly include valuing rent-stabilized apartments as if they were not under any kind of restriction like that, valuing the Mar-a-Lago Club in Florida as if it could be used as a private residence. And even though the deed on the property says that it cannot be used as a private residence. And then there's this point about the square footage of the famous Trump residence in Trump Tower. Apparently, the reality is something like 10,000 square feet. And yet it was valued in these documents as if it was 30,000 square feet. And the judge goes through and says at one point to make that valuation, There was a Trump Realty employee who asked if he could see the apartment or if he could get a floor plan of the apartment, and he was told no. They valued it as if it was 30,000 square feet. And then Forbes apparently put in a media request saying, is this correct? This figure looks like it is exaggerated. And Kim, yet they continued to use that same sort of figure. It was signed off again shortly after Forbes made that inquiry, and the judge cites some emails that it was being considered within the Trump organization. And so I find some of the business conduct hard to defend. On the other hand, $355 million, it seems like there would be other ways for New York to police that, including some of the other remedies that the judge orders, including having you know an impartial person who is in the Trump organization advising it and overseeing those kinds of valuations. And the Trump team would have to get that sign off before they send those out to lenders again. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to try to defend the goings on in New York real estate or New Jersey real estate or any real estate because it's known as an industry where these kind of shenanigans are part and parcel of the business. But I guess that to me brings up the question of why this is being handled as a civil suit by New York State rather than this being an issue to be sorted out between the Trump organization and those who did the lending. And and that's the point here. The reason it never was is because in the end, the lenders made money on this loan. Whatever the numbers were that were sent in, in the end, that representation was not material to the question of whether or not Donald Trump was able to repay these loans and whether or not the people who loaned him the money actually made a good deal out of it. And I found it really striking some of the documents that were in there that the judge cited, he noted that, oh, for instance, the accountant at Mazars, which was one of the organizations that helped prepare these papers, said that the Trump organization in the end withheld some documents that Mazars had requested. Well, you know, one answer to that is then don't issue the papers, don't sign off on this if you haven't received everything you were going to get. You know, also there was a a quote from a managing director of Deutsche Bank who worked in their private wealth management thing saying that he assumed the representations that were being given to him were broadly correct. You know, you can ask the question if there was any doubt about that in any way, shape or form, why Deutsche Bank didn't require more information or require access to that property to understand what the real reality was. In the end, they noted that the loan was largely given because of the personal guarantee that Donald Trump had given. 
that appears to be in the end, the only thing that really mattered to them. And Deutsche Bank made money on the loan. Note as well that they told the judge that they had, in fact, assumed that probably some of this was a bit inflated and they added a haircut to some of these numbers on that assumption. So nobody loses any money. The players all seem to be aware of how this all works. That to me is the bigger question. And then the one that you get to, which even if you can make some argument for why this is New York's business, even if you can put aside the fact that it seems incredibly clear that Letitia James, the attorney general, was simply hunting for a crime to nail Donald Trump with, even if you go there, like you said, there are about 100 different remedies you could have put forward here to actually police this conduct rather than go down the very aggressive road that this judge did. Hang tight. We'll be right back after one more break. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. Let's give Donald Trump a word here. Here he is responding to the fraud ruling on Friday outside Mar-a-Lago in Florida. It's mostly talking about New York, where we have a totally corrupt attorney general. She campaigned on the fact that I will get Trump, I will get Trump. Everybody's seen it. Letitia James. They've all seen it. Well, we'll be appealing. But more important than that, this is Russia. This is China. This is the same game. It all comes out of the DOJ. It all comes out of Biden. It's a witch hunt against his political opponent, the likes of which our country has never seen before. You see it in third world countries, banana republics, but you don't see it here. Bill, as Kim describes, the banks involved here did not lose any money on these transactions, and they are not the ones that are aggrieved coming to court going after President Trump. This is an elected Democratic prosecutor that is doing it. On the other hand, to play devil's advocate here, what the judge says in his ruling is he acknowledges that there are no losses. He says that the New York law at issue here does not require any losses. And he says that New York is the financial capital of the United States. And the state has an interest in making sure that these kinds of financial transactions are made on the basis of representations that are true, or at least a good faith effort to be done. He says, obviously, if you have appraisals, it's an art and a science. But at some point, you get to a value where it's no longer a good faith disagreement. And so he's making the argument that New York has a business in policing this kind of thing. Again, even if there are no specific losses you can point to in this case, other than that, the banks would have charged a higher interest rate if they had known Trump's actual financial condition. Yeah, I don't think any other state has quite the law that New York does. And I would assume that if the judge's ruling stands and they don't change the law, It'll be very bad for business in New York. I think a lot of people won't invest and will get out because they look at this and they say, if this is the kind of justice that we have, 
no, thank you, I'll go down in Florida or something. And the other thing I think is obvious from it is that it was anyone but Donald Trump, the case never would have been brought. It's not been brought before. It's only Donald Trump. That is not a good standard for a city that maintains itself as a global capital. And so I think New York has a problem, too, in addition to Trump. And Trump, look, we criticize him all the time for his dunderheaded things that he blurts out and some really horrible things. But in this case, I think he's more wronged than wrong himself. Kim, we'll give you the last word, but the point about the breadth of this law, I think, is an interesting one and maybe something that other businesses are now newly aware of. And it does make me wonder whether there are other CEOs who, even if they are more careful with their financial statements than the Trump team seems to have been here or is alleged to have been here, I wonder if there are any CEOs who are wondering My, if the state of New York and an elected prosecutor is going to go after a business like this and hit them with a fine and disgorgement and penalties that could total something like a half a billion dollars, then that's a real problem, even if I have no reason to think that I might be the next target of it. Well, not only have they been thinking this, not only are they thinking this, they've been thinking this a long time because this racket has been going on in New York for a long time. And you already see people taking actions as a result of it. Look, as somebody who was, for my sins, back covering all of the different suits that were brought by Elliot Spitzer when he was the attorney general. New York has a couple of these sweeping laws like the Martin Act, which already put companies at grave risk should a political figure decide that they want to raise their star by going after some big name in the financial industry. This is just the latest example of that happening using yet another law. In a way, what this judge did is groundbreaking and not in a positive way. So now these CEOs have even more to worry about. And, you know, I don't think it is any surprise. You look at Goldman Sachs broke ground last year on its new campus in Texas, which is going to be Goldman Sachs too. It isn't entirely evacuating New York, but it's made clear that to the extent it intends to grow its business, it's going to do so in states other than the, quote, financial capital of the world. You've seen other businesses moving for places like Florida, et cetera. And you know that some of that is due to taxes because their employees want a better place to live, easier to raise family and more freedom. But you have to believe that at least somewhere in the back of these guys' heads and figuring into that calculation very much is the legal environment in New York. And what you see increasingly, a lot of politicians there who care very little about the law and are happy to abuse it and use it in whatever way possible if it will help guarantee their re-election. Thank you, Kim and Bill. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button and we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Potomac Watch.